This is an ABC podcast. Good morning and welcome to AM. I'm Kim Landers coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. The US President Joe Biden has become even more deeply embroiled in a scandal over his handling of classified documents. The Attorney General has appointed a special counsel to probe why classified documents were kept at his home and in a Washington office. The probe comes after Mr Biden repeatedly attacked Donald Trump for stashing classified material at his home. Here's North America correspondent Carrington Clark. A significant ratcheting up of the pressure on President Joe Biden after the White House admitted a second set of classified documents had been discovered at the private home of the president, Attorney General Merrick Garland decided he had to act. The extraordinary circumstances here require the appointment of a special counsel for this matter. This appointment underscores for the public the department's commitment to both independence and accountability in particularly sensitive matters and to making decisions indisputably guided only by the facts and the law. The special counsel is Robert Herr, the former US attorney in Maryland. Significantly, it was former President Donald Trump who'd nominated him for that role, something that should minimise the risk of the appointment being criticised. Merrick Garland has promised Mr Herr will receive all the resources necessary to fully investigate the matter and determine who was responsible for the classified documents being incorrectly stored. Before the announcement of the special counsel, Joe Biden stressed he would work cooperatively with those investigating. People know I take classified documents and classified material seriously. I also said we're cooperating fully and completely with the Justice Department's review. The White House has refused to say what the documents actually are or how many were discovered. It's at least politically embarrassing for the president. He previously railed against his predecessor after classified documents were found in Donald Trump's Florida home. The White House says the fundamental difference here is that they notified relevant authorities as soon as the documents were discovered, while Donald Trump refused to cooperate. But Republicans have jumped on the discovery. Newly installed Speaker Kevin McCarthy says he'll be pursuing this issue now that his party has control over the direction of committees. I think Congress has to investigate this. Here's an individual that's been in office for more than 40 years. Here's an individual that sat on 60 Minutes that was so concerned about President Trump's documents locked in behind, and now we find it just as a vice president, keeping it for years out in the open in different locations. Today's announcement means there are two special counsels investigating the behaviour of two American presidents at the same time. A messy situation just as the new Congress starts taking shape. This is Carrington Clark in Washington. Reporting for AM. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese will meet with members of PNG's Defence Force today as Australia and PNG commit to finalising a bilateral defence treaty. On the second day of his landmark PNG visit, Mr Albanese will be in the coastal city of Weewak. Our PNG correspondent is Natalie Whiting. Mr Albanese will be spending the day in Weewak. So while he's in uh, Weewak, which is a coastal city on the other side of the island, he'll be laying a wreath there on the grave of uh, PNG's first Prime Minister, Sir Michael Samare. Now, that was the man who led PNG to independence from Australia. Uh, Mr Albanese will also be visiting a World War II memorial and the local army barracks. Uh, It's been interesting. He's been drawing heavily on the two countries' shared history in his messages during the visit. So the schedule for today certainly seems to fit with that. And there's been a lot of focus on this proposed security pact. Do we have any more details about it? 
the two countries are negotiating a bilateral security treaty. Uh, yesterday, after the leaders' meeting, uh, the two prime ministers committed to finalising those discussions and negotiations by April so that it can be signed off in June. So we are going to have to wait a few months to see what the detail is. Uh, but Mr Albanese uh, has said it will go further than just increased defence cooperation into things like cybersecurity and policing uh, so these are areas that Australia already works with PNG, uh, but this would obviously take it to another level. We heard Mr Albanese in his speech to Parliament yesterday talking about PNG and Australia working together for a safer and more secure region uh, in what he said could be a decisive decade. So clearly this treaty is in part to try to ward off a more assertive China following Canberra's uh, alarm at seeing Beijing's recent moves to form its own security agreements in the Pacific. And what's been the priority from the PNG side and Prime Minister James Marape um, from this visit? The focus for PNG has definitely been economic. Uh, Mr Marape yesterday was saying he wants the country to become economically independent. Uh, that's a phrase uh, he quite likes. He's been using quite regularly during his time in power. So PNG currently receives about $600 million in aid funding from Australia a year, and it's also been given more than a billion dollars in loans since 2019, the most recent uh, just last month, uh, for its budget and its budget repair work. Uh, so Mr Marape and Mr Albanese uh, have spoken about trying to further increase business links and trade, uh, but look, PNG will also need to address domestic issues like reliable power supply in order to improve its economy. Correspondent Natalie Whiting in PNG. Australian renewable energy developers say there are lessons to be learned from the collapse of plans to build the world's largest solar farm in the Northern Territory and export its power to Singapore. Although the Sun Cable project has been placed into voluntary administration, the NT government is still touting it as the key to its future power supply, even though other solar farms are sitting idle, not allowed to connect to the grid. Jane Barden explains. More than two years after energy company ENI finished building a $45 million solar farm on 65 hectares of Peter Trembath's cattle property near Catherine, it's still sitting idle. It's brainless to me. Stupid, profligately wasteful. Despite asking for the farm to be built, the NT government has refused to let ENI connect to its electricity grid. The ENI management seemed to have different hurdles placed in front of them. It's like it was meant to be a 1,000-metre hurdle race, now it's a 3,000-metre hurdle race. Also in the Territory, for three years, Alana Eldridge has been trying to build a 50-megawatt, $100 million solar farm at Livingston. She's accusing the government of putting all its faith in Sun Cable, favouring it to provide the NT's future power needs and to meet its 50% renewable energy by 2030 target. It was always going to be a high-risk project that met with great scepticism among most in the renewables industry, which is why it was so surprising that the NT government was spruiking it so hard. And meanwhile, there are projects of sensible scale already built but not transmitting. 
Alana Eldridge can't move to a final investment decision for her project because the government is demanding she predict exactly how much power will be provided at all times to be allowed to connect to the grid. So, in effect, what the government is achieving is disincentivising investment in the Northern Territory. The NT government has said it needs to know exactly how much power local farms will produce in order to keep its grid stable. It says they will be able to connect after a process of rigorous testing. The Acting Chief Minister Nicole Manison is relying on the Sun Cable proponents' assurances it won't collapse altogether. They expect this to be resolved swiftly, in fact in a matter of months. The NT government has also said it's trying to protect taxpayer investments it's made in gas-fired power stations, along with its commitment to buy $5 billion worth of gas from ENI until 2031. But in October, ENI's black tip gas field unexpectedly stopped producing enough gas, and the NT government has had to beg for emergency supplies from the Inpex gas plant. Bruce Robertson from the Institute for Energy Economics think tank says the government appears to be making the mistake of putting all of its eggs in one basket again with Sun Cable. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush and there are obviously some very advanced projects in the Northern Territory, some that are actually built. You know, the Northern Territory government should be advancing those and getting more renewable energy into the Northern Territory grid, which is a very fossil fuel rich grid. Have governments basically had a tendency to put all their hopes in big projects like this? It's a trend of all governments. They, they like to go for the silver bullet approach to things. Often what it actually does is create problems. Um, Snowy Hydro 2 has created problems by being a big project that is running very, very late. And it means we've got to backfill that gap. As the Catherine Solar Farm sits unused, Peter Trembath is losing money. It's probably hurting us about 100 grand a year and it's probably hurting E and I a hell of a lot more. And watching the opportunity to reduce greenhouse gas emissions slip away. The solar panels, everything's degrading. So when's it going to happen? Catherine Farmer, Peter Trembath speaking to Jane Barden. Ukrainian forces say they're holding out in the battle for Solodar in the eastern Donetsk region, despite heavy bombardment from a growing Russian offensive. Russian mercenaries claimed victory in the salt mining town, but both the Kremlin and Kyiv say fighting is continuing. Michelle Rimmer reports. The battle for the eastern Ukrainian town of Solodar is intensifying. Drone footage of the salt mining town has revealed few buildings are still standing. Once green, fields and roads are scarred with bomb craters. A 24-year-old Ukrainian soldier who goes by the call sign Book is stationed near Solodar. He says fighting has become more difficult, but Ukraine's troops are holding firm. The intensity of shelling has risen about 70%, but nothing has changed radically. The situation is difficult but stable. We're holding back the enemy. Nobody leaves their positions. The positions are being held. We're fighting back. Solidar is less than 10 kilometres from the city of Bakhmut, and seizing it would give Russian forces fighting there an advantage. Ukraine has dismissed claims by Russian mercenary group Wagner that it's taken full control of the town. The Kremlin has also refrained from endorsing the claim of victory. 
President Putin's spokesperson Dmitry Peskov praised the progress made by Russia's forces, but says the battle isn't over. A truly gigantic job has been done in Solidar. It's an absolutely selfless and heroic action, and not only in Solidar, but in many areas where the offensives have been carried out. They will continue. There's still a lot to be done, and it's too early to stop and rub our hands together and so on. The main work is still ahead. Ukraine's ambassador to the UK says there's not much of Solidar left. But after significant losses in recent months, Russia needs to present a win to Vladimir Putin. The Russian president has replaced the commander in charge of his war effort after just three months in the job. Ukraine's UK ambassador Vadim Prostako says the sudden change in battlefield leadership is a sign Putin's war isn't going his way. If, if Putin is sending his best strategists to, to command the troops on the ground, it means that he is quite desperate. We are not dismissive. We understand the danger of Russian uh, Russian army. We understand if they will have another mobilization, it will be very difficult to deal with them. So we are careful, but at the same time, we are quite optimistic. They are throwing everything they have, the last pieces, just to secure the victory, which we haven't allowed them. This is Michelle Rimmer in London reporting for AM. A spate of terror attacks in Afghanistan is threatening the Taliban's control. There are almost weekly attacks in Kabul, which have mostly been claimed by the South Asia wing of the Islamic State group. And experts say the Taliban leadership is split on how to deal with them. South Asia correspondent Avani Dias reports. On the streets of Kabul, authorities rush to a hotel where an explosion has wounded five Chinese people. Attacks like that in December have been happening almost weekly in Kabul in the last year. And Rahimi, an Afghan women's activist, says life in Kabul has gone from a war zone to a city facing constant terror. The explosions have not stopped and we are witnessing them. So the people are not secure under the Taliban governing and we don't feel secure. When the US and its allies pulled out troops from Afghanistan more than a year ago, the West, alongside the Taliban, promised it would bring peace to the country. The militant group said it would contain terror attacks if it could take power. Afghanistan researcher at the University of New South Wales, Dr Sprinjoy Bose, says that promise now appears to be broken. The Taliban have been claiming that they have brought peace to the country, right? Attacks by insurgent groups undermines their propaganda efforts. Most of the attacks have been claimed by ISIS-K, a Taliban rival which wants to establish itself as the most extreme Islamist organisation in the region. Analysts believe ISIS-K is attacking foreigners to try and deter investors interested in working with the Taliban, which is facing a collapsing economy with no international aid. The Taliban's acting commerce minister, Haji Noruddin Aziz, says his administration wants economic Iran is interested in investing in Afghan land, which is close to water. China also wants investment in this field. And some other countries also want to invest in the fields of agriculture, livestock and industry. The Taliban signed its first international deal at the start of January with a Chinese company to extract oil from a basin in northern Afghanistan. And it's refocused its channel on encrypted messaging platform Telegram to counter ISIS-K propaganda. But experts say the Taliban leadership appears to be facing internal battles on how to deal with insurgents. When the Taliban were an insurgency, their narrative was coherent. 
And there seems to be a unraveling of that narrative. And that tells me the different leaders, the different groups are not speaking to each other or are in disagreement in terms of a coherent approach vis-a-vis all of these issues. This is Avani Dias reporting for AM. A new report is recommending deferring medical interventions on children who are born intersex until they can decide for themselves. Around 1 in 100 babies are born with sexual traits that are neither typically male or female. And at the moment, parents are allowed to decide whether they have surgery. Oliver Gordon reports. Not long after 24-year-old intersex person Mimi was born, her parents provided consent for her to be operated on to make her body more typically female. Whatever they did, they did with the the most love and the best intentions that they've ever had um, and always will have for me. But if they had the information that they have today when I was born, I don't think they would have done the same things. Um, And definitely I wouldn't have agreed with with those either. Mimi holds no grudge against her parents. In fact, she loves them very much. She does wish they hadn't allowed doctors to operate on her at a young age, though. It definitely had a huge impact on my life. Mimi's mother, Shan, says she wishes there was more information around at the time. We made decisions on her behalf uh, that had a lasting impact and um, were you know, probably difficult to reverse. And uh, so that is something that weighs heavily on any parent. Around one in 100 babies in Australia are born intersex. As it stands, parents can consent to operations not long after birth to make their child's bodies appear more typically male or female. For many years, some members of the intersex community have tried to outlaw this practice. They say intersex people should make decisions about their bodies themselves when they're older. LGBTIQ plus rights organisation Equality Australia agrees. Today it's released its proposal for an alternative model that would see an oversight panel help parents and children decide on the best course of action. Ghassan Kassasia is the organisation's legal director. What we're proposing is that where those surgeries are unnecessary and can wait until the person is old enough to make a decision for themselves, that a oversight panel decides that that surgery should be deferred until that person can make their own decision. And so when could a person make that decision for themselves? Is it when they're 18? It would depend on their capacity to understand the consequences of the decision. So it might be earlier than when they're fully adult. It might be as they reach their teen years um, and they can express their own views about what they want to, to happen to their own bodies. In July last year, the Victorian government signalled it would move towards prohibiting non-consensual, deferrable medical interventions on intersex people. The ACT has moved even further towards this solution. It has draft legislation to protect the rights of intersex people. Mimi's also in favour of the reform. She just wishes it came a little earlier. When I talk to uh, friends and family and anyone really about the work I do in intersex advocacy, um, they're always shocked that these harmful practices are still happening within Australia and they honestly find it um, almost unbelievable that there isn't legislation here already. So it's it's kind of weird to ask why isn't it why is now the time? Well, really the time was 
10, 15, 20 years ago, but better late than never. Intersex person Mimi ending Oliver Gordon's report. And that is AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Kim Landers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.